From CPRI and the CPRI Knowledge Hub, this is Research Minutes, a weekly look at new and important research in education. Today, we look at affordable housing in a recent study examining its relationship to racial and economic segregation in schools. Overall, we did find that Black and Latinx students experienced extremely high levels of racial isolation and extremely high levels of concentrated poverty in their schools overall. But when you look at the presence or absence of subsidized housing, you find that these patterns are much, much worse. We welcome UT Austin's Jennifer Holm and Penn State's Erica Frankenberg. They discuss what their team learned about affordable housing, attendance zones, and school segregation. There seems to be some kind of We refer to it as almost dividend for white students, that their whiteness protects them from the same kind of effects of having federally subsidized housing programs in their school's attendance zone in ways that aren't the same for Black and Latinx students. And some important implications for policymakers, researchers, and other stakeholders across the country. I know school district boundary lines are sometimes viewed as politically sacrosanct, but You know, I think it's worth wondering whether those boundaries are unfairly separating students and adding more to what we're asking some districts to do than others. That's right now on Research Minutes. Hello and welcome to Research Minutes. I'm Keith Miller, Managing Editor of the CPRI Knowledge Hub. Today, we're happy to be speaking with Jennifer Holm, Associate Professor in the Department of Educational Leadership and Policy at the University of Texas at Austin. Welcome, Jennifer. Thanks for having me. And we're also speaking with Erica Frankenberg, Professor of Education with the Penn State College of Education. Thanks so much for joining us, Erica. Thanks so much, Keith. So today we're discussing your new study, which was co-authored by Joanna Sanchez, Kendra Taylor, Sarah De La Garza, and Michelle Kennedy, titled Subsidized Housing and School Segregation, Examining the Relationship Between Federally Subsidized Affordable Housing and Racial and Economic Isolation in Schools. It was recently published in Education Policy Analysis Archives, and it examines the often radically different realities faced by students who live in affordable housing versus those who don't. To start, Jennifer, uh, could you just give us a little bit of context? What is federally subsidized or affordable housing as it relates to this study, and roughly how many families live in subsidized homes? The federal government became involved in making housing more affordable in the late 1930s and mid-1940s, and they've been providing uh, various supports for low-income families ever since. The nature of the federal subsidies for housing have changed over time. So today, as we discuss in our piece, there are roughly four types of subsidized housing out there that, that is supported by the federal government. The first is public housing, which is housing that is both built and owned and operated by the federal government. There are low-income tax credit financed housing, which are built through private tax credits that are provided through the federal government, and it's funneled through states and then provided to housing developers on the private market to incentivize construction of housing that is affordable for low-income families. And then there are two other types of housing that really rely on participation by landlords in the private market. And those are the Housing Choice Voucher Program, which provides vouchers to low-income families to go use on the private market to help pay for their rent, and also project-based Section 8 housing, which contracts with individual landlords to provide one or two units or more in their 
buildings. So while there are an array of different types of housing, in our work, we really sought to zoom in on two of these types of housing, both public housing and the low-income tax credit financed housing, because these are really much more controlled by the government in terms of where they're located, and they are often more amenable, therefore, to policy intervention, because they're less reliant on, on the compliance of private landlords in that regard. Overall, there are about 8 million families served in across these four programs annually, um, although the data, um, and we can talk more about that later, the data on some of these programs is less than um, uh, perfect. But, um, you know, there's there has been a lot of research on where these developments are located, but very few pieces of research have really looked at how school segregation relates to the location of these developments. So we know that these developments tend to often reinforce existing patterns of housing segregation by race and poverty, but our work was really interested in understanding the level of segregation experienced by students that are living in these developments and in terms of the types of schools that they have access to. So Jennifer, what did we know about the relationship between subsidized housing and education prior to your work here? Um, And what additional questions did your team have in approaching this work? The reason that we were interested in school segregation is that it's an important indication of educational opportunity. Uh, Extensive body of research has shown that segregated schools face systematic barriers that are shown to depress student achievement and limit opportunity both in the short and the long term. And what is unique about our study is that we were able to create and use a unique data set that looks at the actual schools that subsidized housing developments are zoned to. So prior to this work, researchers did not have access to actual attendance zones of schools. So they were only able to model the nearest school that was closest to particular developments. And our work is unique in that we actually got actual attendance zone data that Erica can elaborate on more in a little bit about. Erica, could you just give us an overview of your approach? Yes. As Jen already alluded to, I think a strength of this study is the unique way in which we are able to bring together a variety of different data sources from both within education, both federal and state education data, as well as data from housing in order to look at four rather large counties in Texas, which itself is an incredibly diverse state. Just to to recap, our our research questions are, first, what's the distribution of subsidized housing types between and within school districts? And so the way we looked at this is we got spatial analysis to be able to locate federal housing units in districts and school attendance zone boundaries in these four large counties in Texas. And so we were able to see the extent to which that these were concentrated or not in particular districts or within these districts even. And we could look at both public housing and low-income tax credit units separately or together. And then we had two other questions that wanted to understand the level of segregation by both race and poverty, given the patterns of distribution that we saw. And so in order to do that, we need to layer on to the spatial analysis, an examination, a quantitative examination of enrollment data that we got from the Texas Educational Agency. And we use two commonly used measures of segregation, both concentration as well as exposure index to look at 
school-level concentration by race and poverty, we looked at schools that were doubly segregated by both Black and Latinx students, as well as high percentages of economically disadvantaged students. And then we also used the exposure index to see whether white students had similar or different experiences to students of color to be able to understand that. We looked at this by each county, as well as across the four counties, and we looked by elementary, middle, and high school. So let's jump right into your findings. To start, Jen, uh, what did you learn about the distribution of subsidized housing across and within school districts? So both our analysis and our maps illustrated that both public housing and low-income housing tax credit developments tended to be clustered into school districts with larger concentrations of low-income students and students of color. And particularly, they were concentrated in urban core school districts and entering suburban school systems, which both of those types of districts often had both types of housing within them, typically. So they, they tended to have a disproportionate share of both public housing and low-income housing, tax credit housing. And then we also looked within those school districts, and we found that these developments were also clustered into both racially and economically isolated neighborhoods within those school districts. And beyond that, when we looked really closely and zoomed in on attendance zones, we found often that developments were located within the same school attendance zone often. So, so while some schools within those districts had no developments in attendance zones, other schools had multiple types of development zone to them, which kind of points to something that we can talk about a little later around policy implications, that school districts tended to draw boundary zones in such a way that concentrated developments into the zones of the same school. And as Erica alluded to, we used multiple measures looking at the dimensions of school segregation experienced by students uh, zoned to those schools. And we looked at two particular indicators developed by the Government Accountability Office. We looked, one, at this an indicator of what we call intensely isolated schools, which were schools that were both 75% low income, as measured by the percentage of students eligible for free and reduced price lunch, and also 75% African-American and Latino students combined. And so schools that were 75% of both of those things, we called those intensely isolated schools. And then schools where 90% of students were low income and 90% students of color, particularly Latino and African-American students, we called those extremely isolated schools. And what we found is overall that schools with both types of housing in them were much more likely to be both intensely isolated and extremely isolated than schools with no types of housing in them. And schools with one type of housing in them, we also found were much more likely to be either intensely or extremely isolated by race and class. So, for example, in a school that has both public housing and a low-income housing tax credit unit within its attendance zone area, we found that over half of them were schools that were both 90% economically disadvantaged kids and 90% of students were Black and Latinx. Compared to schools that had no subs federally subsidized housing within their attendance zone boundaries, less than 20% had similar levels of racial and economic segregation. And so that, to me, shows the, the difference sort of on aggregate of the presence of low-income housing tax credit and public housing. 
And this held up whether we were looking at elementary, middle, or high schools. So that's sort of an overall trend. The other piece that I would just mention is even in these suburban, entering suburban districts, so for example, Garland or Mesquite ISD in the Dallas County, there was a clustering of federally subsidized housing units in certain attendance zone areas that I think helps us to understand why we're seeing these patterns. And also to add to that, I think one of the big important pieces around context is that historically, many communities of color and low-income communities have been subject to many policies that have created and exacerbated segregation. And then we see that these developments tend to be concentrated into those communities and then zoned to schools serving those communities. And some would argue that, well, housing developments should be located where low-income people live to better support and serve them. But what we find and what our data show, and it's also reinforced by the research on housing, is that these developments actually compound problems of racial and economic segregation, both in schools and in communities. And that oftentimes locating these developments in these kinds of school zones and in those kinds of communities can tend to deepen isolation from opportunity for families in terms of accessing jobs that are often located in different kinds of communities, um, schools that have are rich in resources for learning, and other amenities like grocery stores and parks and other kinds of services that are beneficial for child development. And that brings us to the other big overarching line of inquiry in the study, the relationship between subsidized housing and school segregation. Erica, could you walk us through what you learned there? Right. Happy to. I think this is really important for us to understand what the consequences are in terms of school segregation for the patterns that we've already been talking about. So in addition to the double concentration that we were talking about with the intensely and extremely isolated schools, we also looked at what the typical experiences were of students of different races in their schools. And this, to me, is an important measure to look at because we want to see what does the typical white student or a typical black student experience based on the extent to which there is federally subsidized housing zone to the school that they are, attend. And the results here, I think, are particularly concerning given that some of the issues that Jennifer just talked about in terms of educational opportunity that is available in some schools and maybe not evenly available in all types of schools. So, for example, we see that the issue of segregation varies dramatically for students by race. And so, in particular, white students are not affected the same way as other race students are by the presence of federally subsidized housing in their school's attendance zone area. So even a white student that has both public housing and low-income housing tax credit within their school's attendance zone area goes to a school that's about 50% economically disadvantaged on average. By contrast, a typical Black or Latinx student that has both types of subsidized housing in their school's attendance zone area would go to a school that's 85% economically disadvantaged on average. And so those are just quite different schools in terms of the resources that students are bringing to the school, the needs that teachers and educators need to address. And so two other points that I would highlight. One is that we saw, in particular for Black students, that having both types of housing led to the highest levels of 
exposure to economically disadvantaged students and the lower exposure to white students. And so that concentration of multiple forms of housing is something to probably especially be really cognizant of because of that, maybe the dual impact of having both of those in terms of high levels of exposure. Um, And then the second point to make is that in addition to looking at exposure to economically disadvantaged students, we also looked at exposure to both white students as well as to Black and Latinx students. And we saw that by and large, the same patterns by exposure by race hold up as those that I just described for exposure to economically disadvantaged students. The white students generally have much higher exposure to other white students and much lower exposure to Black and Latinx students overall, and especially in schools that don't have any subsidized housing zone to it. And for Black and Latinx students in particular, they have quite low exposure to white students and very high exposure to other Black and Latinx students in schools that have both public housing and low-income housing tax credits. So there seems to be some kind of, we refer to it as almost dividend for white students, that their whiteness protects them from the same kind of effects of having federally subsidized housing programs in their school's attendance zone in ways that aren't the same for Black and Latinx students. If I could just underscore a couple of points. Um, This interaction between race and poverty, concentration in schools, and the difference between white students and students of color was just incredibly stark. You know, overall, we did find in Texas that Black and Latinx students experienced extremely high levels of racial isolation and extremely high levels of concentrated poverty in their schools overall. Um, sort of when you don't even look at the presence or absence of subsidized housing in their school attendance zones. But when you look at the presence or absence of subsidized housing, you find that these patterns are much, much worse and the isolation is much deeper. Another piece to look at related to the context and a finding that we found that was somewhat surprising was the level of isolation in schools that had low-income housing tax credit developments within them. And when we kind of looked at that particular policy, Um, And as we detail in our article, that policy typically has been designed to get housing into a broader array of communities. Not always, but in some instances, there is some research out there that shows that these developments, while they tend to reproduce segregation and isolation, as I mentioned earlier, they tend to also often be in somewhat of a broader array of communities. And our maps definitely bore that out to some extent. Um, But we found that when we looked at the school level poverty and school level racial isolation experienced by students with those properties in in their zones, um, it was extremely high. So that was something that we were a little surprised by, given our maps and our data. I think the low-income housing tax credit findings are really something for further exploration, because there is that idea that generally it could be a way to deconcentrate subsidized housing, and in fact, that may bear out when looking residentially, that we weren't seeing that. And in fact, particularly for Black students, there was higher levels of segregation when there was the presence of low-income housing tax credits than public housing only. And so trying to understand whether this is just something unique to the way in which those units were located in the four counties we studied or part of a broader trend, I think, would be a really important thing to understand, because that means that either there should be further analysis of how to better locate these units, or it could be an education policy question of, 
do lines need to be redrawn to better distribute these units to schools that are going to deconcentrate some of the segregation effects we saw? As you note in the article, this is one of the first studies of its kind, and I imagine your findings will be of interest to a wide range of groups from the federal level to counties and municipalities. So Jennifer, uh, what do you think the big implications are here and what can be done to try and address these issues and their impacts on students? One of the big implications I think is more conceptual and for the research community is to really think and encourage educational researchers and housing researchers to collaborate on these types of analyses because I think they are really important and not common enough. And I think they really can help to illuminate ways to understand opportunity for marginalized families and marginalized communities in a way that our often siloed research areas don't don't shed light on. Um, but also our work has implications for policy decisions on multiple levels. And we talk about this within our paper. One of our main arguments is that we really urge policymakers to consider ways to incentivize the construction of housing in a broader range of communities. And the low-income housing tax credit program in Texas has been a particularly interesting case of this. Historically, there was a lawsuit even in Texas about how the state was distributing the tax credits that were then going to finance these properties. And in response to this lawsuit and some other concerns, they actually began to incorporate for a brief period of time some indicators of educational opportunity in their system for awarding credits. And there is some evidence, although it's not explored in our paper, but I think there's some evidence that's worth exploring more deeply that this resulted in the construction of some of these housing developments in a broader range of communities near schools that were high opportunity. And so I think some systems like these where you change the way you award credits and, and incorporate indicators of educational opportunity and levels of segregation could be a really big step forward. And also another point that Erica had made previously around how school districts are drawing attendance zones around these properties is something that is really worthy of attention, both by um, school district leaders, by policymakers, and civil rights activists. And I think looking at these ways in which attendance zones are drawn is a really important and often overlooked piece of this problem. Um, and we really encourage uh, coordination between municipalities to ensure that properties are distributed across different types of contexts and different types of school districts. And so that it's not a handful of urban and entering suburban school systems that tend to have these properties within them. Previously, there was some support at the federal level through a legal rule called Affirmatively Furthering Fair Housing, which required that metropolitan areas do an analysis of where housing was being built in relationship to opportunity indicators like school quality. This particular rule was then later gutted under the Trump administration, but we do urge the new administration that is going to be taking over in January to really reconsider reinstating this rule and strengthening it and really incorporating measures of school segregation in their analysis about where federal tax dollars go for subsidized housing. In fact, I would build on Jen's last point to say uh, in a new administration, a more robust effort to think about this should consider the not just jurisdictions in terms of their fair share, but also in terms of school districts. School districts don't always line up with the type of jurisdictions that are looked at in housing. But as we see from our earlier discussion that there 
is an uneven distribution of federally subsidized housing units by school district, and that leads to inequality between school districts that school boards aren't able to do anything about. And so we need to think about this both from a housing perspective, thinking about the location of these units, as well as thinking from a state education perspective. If there is just an overwhelming concentration of these units in some school districts that are virtually untouched in others, I know school district boundary lines are sometimes viewed as politically sacrosanct, but you know, I think it's worth wondering whether those boundaries are unfairly separating students and adding more to what we're asking some districts to do than others. Well, this is just fantastic work. We want to encourage our listeners to go and read the full article. Again, it's titled Subsidized Housing and School Segregation, Examining the Relationship Between Federally Subsidized Affordable Housing and Racial and Economic Isolation in Schools. Uh, You can find it now in Education Policy Analysis Archives or at epaa.asu.edu. Jennifer Holm and Erica Frankenberg, thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks for having us. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this week's Research Minutes, presented by the CPRI Knowledge Hub. For more episodes or to subscribe to the series, you can find us at researchminutes.org. To share thoughts on today's episode or to suggest a future topic, you can follow us on Twitter at CPRI Hub. That's C-P-R-E Hub.